0: While you're taking your seats, perhaps you turn to your Bibles, if you brought them with you. I'm going to be teaching from the first book of the New Testament and chapter 16. I'm going to be in this chapter for the next four mornings, So that's where we're going to stay and do some, some work together. This is a, a massively important chapter in the Bible. It's a story of how Jesus takes his... Twelve uh, closest disciples away uh, for a few days for some special teaching and training, because he has plans for them. He has a new destination that he wants to take them towards, and so he deliberately gives it some time and some careful thought and some careful conversation so it 's a little bit like new day, basically. It's Jesus taking his disciples away for a summer camp for a few days of instruction. And that's uh, what we're going to be looking at in this uh, next few mornings together. So I'm going to read to you from chapter 16 and uh, just the first 12 verses today. It starts off with uh, Jesus uh, spending time with the, the crowds who have been watching him doing miracles and are excited and excited. Uh, praising God, worshipping God uh, as a result of what they've seen Jesus doing. And and yet we see the way that the, the kind of the, the big influences, the big leaders in Israel are reacting to Jesus, the way they see what he's doing. The guys down in Judea who seem to have control, who have the, the biggest number of... Uh, followers on Twitter, the people who have the biggest amount of influence. They they cast the biggest shadow. What do they think of Jesus? How are they going to respond to him? And we see right now the way they respond, and then you see the way Jesus uh, responds to them. So I'm just going to read you the first 12 verses. It says this, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven, that just means yeast. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you have little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you've brought no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's just pray before we get into this. Father, we are grateful to you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful to you for the words you've given to us in this book to teach us concerning him so that our hearts can be changed, so that we can get to see And know and love and serve him. And so live our lives fruitfully for your honor. And we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit now so that every single one of us in this tent hears from you through the teaching of the Bible today. And that our lives are touched and changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus is in a testing situation. He's he's being checked out by these leaders of the people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people with profile, people you would have recognized, kind of celebrities, people with some influence, certainly, in society. And they are the ones coming to Jesus and saying, "Uh, we'd like to see you do some kind of sign to prove uh, that you really are special, that you really come from God, that we can take you seriously. This, by the way, is a bit different than the kind of response Jesus has been getting from the crowds. So you go back into chapter 15 and verse 31, and after the miracles that Jesus has just performed in Matthew's gospel, namely the feeding of 5,000 people from one packed lunch, and the same kind of miracle, but this time with 4,000 people, same basic idea though, happens twice... This is how they respond. It says in verse 31, chapter 15, the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So the crowd are absolutely mesmerized. They are staggered by what they're seeing. This this is like nothing we've seen before, and we glorify God. It starts to provoke worship. It creates worship amongst the crowds. But then there's these Pharisees and Sadducees, and we see in chapter 16, verse 1, their attitude is different. The Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Their attitude is so different. They want to test and check him. And these are the people that you would would feel pressurized by if they came around saying, now let's just watch to see what you're like. Maybe you've been in a situation like this where you felt pressurised by someone's evaluation of you. I mean, obviously, some of you have just been through some examinations at school or college over the last few weeks and months, and you feel the pressure of being evaluated and tested. Maybe you've sat for a job interview once or twice, and you've felt the pressure of being watched and checked out. You've thrown your CV across someone's desk, and they've checked you out. Maybe you've got a job in a new place, and you're replacing someone else who used to work there and you feel like you're being checked out and compared with the person that went before you. It's an uncomfortable position. And the thing that we naturally find ourselves doing is performing. We naturally start behaving as though we are somebody else. We start trying to be the person that we think this person who's testing us wants us to be. And pretty soon we can end up forgetting who we are at all. We start to operate entirely out of this sense of trying to jump through hoops, trying to perform and trying to impress, trying to be something, even if it isn't what we really are. Jesus somehow doesn't fall into that trap. Jesus is never intimidated. Jesus is never bullied by anybody. If, if we allow ourselves to do it, we will live our lives as one long, basic retweet of everybody else. We just take what everyone else says, everyone else thinks, and we pass it on. We don't have any of our own thoughts or considerations. We don't have any sense of identity left. We're just so influenced by those that we want to be accepted by that we hardly know who we are anymore. But you look at Jesus here and you see this strong personality. You see this courageous rock-like stance where he's able to uh, prevail against a load of tests and a load of opinions and a load of comments that must have been going back and forth all of the time. Jesus stands strong. He knows what he stands for. He knows what to say and where to stand and what to think, how to speak in all these situations. And and I want to look at two things in the time we have this morning, two things we can see about how he responds to the test, to the scrutiny, to the evaluation that's coming on him. People watching him and checking him out. How does he respond? The first thing that we can see is that Jesus immediately sees what's real. Jesus Jesus looks below the surface of people. He looks underneath. He wants to know what's really going on under the skin. What's behind people's questions and objections? Why are they asking the questions that they are? This is what's going on uh, right there in verse 3 of chapter 16, where it says, In the morning, you say, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You guys, you're you're actually pretty good at making scientific judgments. You're clever. You're, You're good at looking at information... And making scientific comments about that information. You look at the sky and say, "Oh, it's going to rain," or you look at the sky another time and say, oh, "It's not going to rain." And you know that—that that was probably about as advanced as their sort of weather forecasts were 2,000 years ago. But you know, we, we changed a bit. We can go not just a few hours in advance now we can go a few days in advance we get a rough idea of, of what's going to happen with the weather and, and that's good that's good science that's good knowledge that's good deduction that's using your mind well and Jesus is saying you guys you, you are intelligent you you're made in the image of God you have an ability to deduce and to know things well done but it's the thing I've noticed you, you can't actually understand other kinds of information when it comes to certain kinds of knowledge, you guys, you behave like you're thick. You behave like you're fools. You're blind. You're, you're absolutely wrong about some things that ought to be just as obvious as, as whether or not it's going to rain in a few hours. You, you should know enough to make this judgment. And he's saying this because... These guys, they like to give the impression when they come to Jesus saying, give us a sign just to show that you are from God. Jesus is saying to them, guys, you know I'm from God. You know I am. the, The question doesn't come from genuine need. You're biased. You already know. You just don't want it to be so. You don't want what's obvious to you. And this is something that's worth us pausing on for a moment because it says so much about the condition of the human heart, especially when it's left to itself, that will help us to understand the the world that we live in and also to understand our own need personally. Maybe you've had the, the experience that I've had once or twice where someone has said to me, that they don't believe in the message of Christianity and I've said to them what would it take for me to be able to persuade you that Jesus is real or at least for you to start thinking that he might be real and then the person has has said well if you could prove this if you could show me this I would take it seriously some of you have had that experience some people have actually said prove Jesus is real by showing me this or doing this I remember once, when I was at college, somebody said to me, "If if you could prove to me that someone who was dead had been prayed for and then was alive again, I would take it seriously. I would think hard about Christianity. If you could," I said, "What kind of proof would you want?" And they said, "Well, a death certificate would be a good example. If you could show me that, and, and then show me the person still alive." So I thought, oh, wow, this is going to work. This person is going to become a Christian. Because I could. Because I, I actually had a book at home written by a, a preacher who had, had actually prayed for someone who was dead. They'd come to life again. And there was a photograph of the death certificate in the book. So I took this book into college the next day and, and showed it to my friend, thinking he's going to become a Christian any minute now. This is all going to happen right now in a lunch break. He's going to become a Christian. And he looked at this book and he looked up at me and he said, who wrote this book? Where did this book come from? and he started asking me a load of questions about the book trying to, to make out there was something sort of doubtful about the authority the authenticity of this book he was trying to, trying to cast loads of unbelief and I, I sat there thinking yeah, but you said that if I showed you a, a, you, 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 you would become I was totally expecting a different reaction but I realised the problem here is not actually that the guy wants more information the problem here is that he doesn't want the information when it comes he doesn't he doesn't need more evidence necessarily he, he might need some more explanation from time to time but really what the problem is is in the heart the problem is deeper than our need for more information the problem between humanity and jesus is that we actually don't want him we don't we instinctively want to keep him away. If you think I'm I'm exaggerating, well, look at Jesus' words himself. In in John chapter 3, he puts it like this very bleakly. uh, John chapter 3 and uh, verses 18 and 19, or, or verse 19 and 20, he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is saying the problem is deeper. There's actually a hatred of God that's deep enough in humanity for them to react. Jesus comes into the world. What does the world do? Rejects him instinctively. We don't really want him because, well, deep within us, there's this, this enmity with God, the Bible calls it. We're not happy with God. We're not comfortable around God. And so when God shows up in human flesh, we're not sure about him. We ask him difficult questions, not because we really would like to know and like to have a good objective scientific discussion. No, 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 no. We don't want him. And so we throw loads of problems his way, loads of hurdles that he's got to jump over, loads of hoops he's got to jump through, because we want to try and find a way out of our responsibility towards him. Jesus is making that very point here. He uses a phrase that's quite interesting. He says in verse 4... Only an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An adulterous generation. That's a strong word to use. He's saying, listen, the problem, guys, is actually that you are not ultimately faithful to your God. You're, you're adulterous. You, you are supposed to be faithful to God like a wife is faithful to her husband, but that is not your story. You've actually been unfaithful to him. You've chosen other lovers, other men. Like we heard last night, you've worshipped idols. You've chosen other gods instead. And so you you seek for a sign, but not from the right motive. The motive is actually an adulterous one. You're pretending not to recognise the bridegroom, the husband, the one that you married, when he comes showing up looking for you in someone else's bed perhaps. And the Bible actually has a lot of stories about how God's people behave like an adulteress, like one who runs away and chooses other husbands, how God comes patiently humbly, longingly calling back his bride, calling back his wife, saying, come back to me, come back to me. I want, I want your faithfulness. What have I done? Why have I disappointed you? What's wrong with me that you would turn away so quickly? Jesus is speaking just like his Father in heaven, saying, you're like an adulterous generation. Your heart is twisted and crooked and turned away from me. And this is a bleak Message: a bleak point for me to make at the outset of a few days together. But it is massively important, friends, that we get this clear as a generation, that we understand the reality of what lurks under the surface, what lurks within the human heart, what's actually there. If it were not for God's powerful liberation that we heard about last night, we, we would still be there ourselves. We need God to set our hearts free. However clever we are, however technological we are, however impressive we are, the kind of things that, that men and women are capable of doing are sensational. The the, this, the the extraordinary accomplishments, the achievements, the exploration of science and the universe and, and, and all the kind of extraordinary ability with, with, with chemistry and biology and physics and everything that people can achieve and do, it is genuinely mind-blowing. And Jesus says to them, you guys, you're good at understanding the weather and patterns like that. You're good at observing. But... You cannot see the thing that should be so obvious to you. We can be wise in our own eyes, but actually become fools. We can be blinded to God. And we live in a culture that's doing that on a massive scale. And for us to just see that as it is and come humbly... As a generation, as thousands of people here at New Day and in churches across the UK and across the world, for us to say to God humbly, we, we do not assume that we know better than you. We come humbly under the text of the Bible. We receive our authority. We receive our information from this book. If our instinct is to go against the Bible, we must learn to doubt our instinct. If we tend to be suspicious of what the Bible says, we should be suspicious of our suspicions. For the very same reason that an airline pilot is trained to not go by his or her instinct. When, when they're actually flying a plane, very often in the early stages, trainee pilots will, will feel like they know how high the plane is or the trajectory the plane is on. They'll feel like they know. Yeah, I just know, I just know. And they'll make judgments that are dangerous, not even realizing it. And their trainers have to say to them, do not do that. Judge by the information that's coming out in front of you. Judge by the instruments. Judge by what's on the dashboard of the plane. Judge by this. Do not judge just by your gut feeling in the plane. And we we live in a time when people are being told all of the time, "Just, just search for the hero inside yourself. Search for your own personal, world. just believe in who you are deep down. Go with your gut. go with what you believe, go with the, the genius that's within you, your muse, your, your personal greatness, your, your perfect intuition that makes you unique. Friends, God made us all unique, but the problem is until we come humbly to this book, we'll use our uniqueness in the wrong way. And we need to say, God, open my eyes to see who you are. Keep me humble before your word. Keep me submissive to it. Because otherwise we'll we'll run into the same mistake as these men, these Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus' word to us one day will be adulterous generation. You're seeking for information that I've already given you. You're just refusing it. And it happens in all kinds of practical, obvious ways. And just even recently, I, I think of... Debates that are happening on both sides of the Atlantic, especially recently in America because of various uh, uh, presidential elections and so on. And, and candidates who, who talk a lot, for example, about, about the rights of women because they care about women, apparently, supposedly. And they should. The Bible teaches that we should care massively about women. Jesus cares about women. The Bible teaches that we should care about women but the way that we use that passion caring about women often turns into a willingness to sacrifice embryos, to sacrifice unborn children, because, well, we care about women. We care about women's rights. We care about the rights of mothers who, who've got pregnant. We, we care about that. We really care about that. We really want to make sure that we look after the rights of women, and so we'll, we'll, we'll allow uh, an unborn child to die. And when you stop and think about it, you you have to accept surely if we're honest with ourselves that that this doesn't make complete sense. In the name of the rights of women, we're allowing millions of unborn women to die. Unborn women, girls, fetuses that are female, but we're saying, well, this is for, for the sake of women. It doesn't actually make sense. It's illogical. When you say that, what tends to come back is, well, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's difficult. And there's no doubt that it's complicated. There's no question that it's complicated. But surely we shouldn't allow the fact that it's complicated just to to throw into complete darkness the fact that we're playing with lives here. Now I make the point just to kind of underline the fact that the human race can be extremely intelligent and at the same time utterly blind. Utterly blind about things that really matter. That we really should care about. But we choose not to because it goes against our personal preferences. That's just a modern example. Surely the best example there's ever been is what happened in this very story later on in Matthew's Gospel. These same kinds of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, especially people like the Pharisees who would have said, we believe in honoring God. We want to obey God. We take the law of God so carefully. We are people of God's law. And when God showed up, they killed him. When God showed up with these people who cared about the honor of God, they killed him. They crucified him. So there's a massive, massive mismatch here between our ability to see things accurately and intelligently and our ability to see God accurately and intelligently. We we would rather go with our personal preferences too often, which are to keep us away from God. Friends, come humbly to God. Honor him with your mind. Let him enlighten you. Let him bring light into your life and into the dark world that we inhabit. I want to talk about the the second thing that he does. Okay, The first thing that we have just touched on is that Jesus sees what's real. The second thing is that he rejects the poison. He rejects the poison. This is what he's going on about in verses 6 and 7. So I'll read to you again verse 6 and 7. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. So this is when Jesus has just taken the the 12 disciples away with him, away from the crowd, away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's taken them to New Day. He's taken them away from the watching world. It's time to just gather on a field in Norfolk with tents and caravans and just talk as, as you know, people who, who, who are listening to him and wanting to know what he has to say. And he starts by warning them against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, look, be, be wary. Watch out for that yeast. Now, the disciples actually get a bit confused at this point, which is um, always amusing to me. This is actually one of my favorite little verses in the, the Gospels because it just shows how, how hilarious it must have been. Being a disciple of Jesus. These disciples were not always clued up. They didn't always quite know what Jesus was trying to say. So they, they, Jesus starts to try to get them together and says, Guys, I'm really, really concerned. I, this is a big deal. We've just been with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I've brought you away because I want to talk to you about what I want you guys to be like. I don't want the bread that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are making. I don't want the, the spiritual bread that they are producing. We're going to make a new batch of bread. We're going to make new life, new uh, destination, new, new power, new glory from God that's, that's come through me, Jesus, bringing the life and the light of God into the world. I, I don't want it to be anything like what the Pharisees and the Sadducees have. That's the kind of point he's trying to make. But These guys, they immediately start quarreling about who, who, whose job was it to bring the bread? They get a bit confused. In fact, when I read the, the Gospels, I, I, I don't know about you, I, I do often think of the disciples not so much as like great noble leaders during the time when Jesus was teaching them, but more like this guy that you might remember. I want you to on me. That's, that's the kind of culture of the Gospels. It's this kind of atmosphere of... What, We we don't really know what he's talking about so much of the time. We're confused about his message. We don't really get it. What's he saying? Jesus is communicating something so hugely important here. And this is important for us, especially as well today. Jesus is is teaching his disciples to know that that a tiny bit of this proud self-sufficiency still goes a very long way. A tiny bit of yeast still influences the whole bread. That's the whole thing with, with yeast or with, with leaven, as he calls it here. If you've ever made something, I don't know, in, in, uh, in, 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 your, in any kind of baking that you may have been exposed to or seen, you, you notice that, that a tiny bit will actually influence the whole dough. It actually causes it to grow completely disproportionately. And, and Jesus is warning these disciples, saying, now guys, look, be careful. Watch, watch out for that yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for that influence. Watch out for the kind of thinking that these guys have. It's worth just stopping for a moment to look at the, the two groups specifically. The Pharisees were the ones who were uber-religious. The, the Sadducees were the ones who were, they were kind of what we might call worldly they were, they were not so interested in the Old Testament and keeping the, the religious and the spiritual ideas of the Old Testament carefully. They, they were really very, very different. They were very liberal, very licentious. They, they, they were really interested in this world, this present age, being powerful, being accepted, having popularity even, with those who had power, with the elites. With even the celebrity culture, you could say. I guess that at New Day, we're, we're a group of people here made up of those who would perhaps fit the Pharisee culture more or those who would fit the Sadducee culture more. I don't know which way you would go. I think at times in my life, as a teenager especially, I would have been one of either. I know at, at times my, my biggest goal, my biggest passion, my biggest longing. Was to be accepted by the right group of people. Was to have the approval of people at school or college who I, I really thought if I if I ever got unex- if I ever got kind of excluded from that community from those people, it would be shattering. That would be too much of a deal breaker. I could not do that. Don't ever let that happen to me. It costs too much to imagine losing their respect, losing their acceptance. And that was one of the main reasons why following Jesus, when I was about 15 years old, was an unbearable thought. What would happen if I had to actually live for Jesus? If I was to put Jesus first, I know I would lose friends. I know I would lose influence. I know that it would cost so much to me. What would happen was this kind of the yeast of the Sadducees that got into me. It had grown up, it had blown up inside me. It was like this, this, this bread inside me, that this, this stuff that was supposed to feed me, but it was actually poisoning me. It was stopping me from knowing who I really was in the first place. So different to Jesus. I was so concerned to fit in that I didn't really know who I was anymore. And that's the Sadducees all over. The, the interesting thing is that Jesus also talks about the Pharisees in the same breath. He says, look, you, you beware of the, the Sadducees' yeast and the Pharisees' yeast. He kind of talks about them as though they're the same thing. The Pharisees weren't the same as the Sadducees, though. The Pharisees were the ones who said, no, we, we take God so seriously. Like I was saying earlier, we take the law of God seriously. We want to be hardcore, God-fearing, God-people. We, we really We are just pushing the extremes. We we really are into God. We're so into him and we're so into his message and we're so into his teaching. But Jesus looked below the surface to see what was in their heart and he recognized that actually in the heart of the Pharisees was not a genuine love for God, not even a desire for God. Really, it was a desire for their own righteousness, for their own achievement, for their own goodness, for their own ability to prove themselves, to score high on the religious charts, to, to, to get more, make more of an impression even so that they could show off their righteousness to other people and be impressive religiously, be impressive as a spiritual person. My experience with, with people in their teens in the UK who are in churches today is that there's a lot of that as well. There are many Sadducees, like I was, about 15. There are many Pharisees too. Many, more than we realize. Many who really, you see your life as an ongoing attempt to achieve a certain score, spiritually, to achieve a certain level of righteousness that will mean, yeah, I'm, I'm acceptable now. You may actually say, no, no, I don't believe that. No, I know that I'm accepted by God because he loves me. But actually, the way that you think naturally and the way that you live seems to suggest otherwise. It seems that really what you're basing your hope on is, is a bit of Jesus and a bit of your own good works thrown in as well. A bit of your own righteousness too. And what we're really doing is we're saying to Jesus, your bread is not enough for me. I must have this other bread. I must have this other yeast. I must I must I must prove myself as a good Christian. I must be the the impressive Christian that I long to be. I must I must achieve something. And I I can definitely relate to this as well. Definitely. I know that there are times in my own Christian life today, these days, where I still find myself deeply attracted to the yeast of the Pharisees. Deeply attracted. I'm I'm genuinely able to even preach and teach to my church and to to you guys that that we we need to base our hope on on Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and Jesus is enough for us and Jesus is all we need. But if I've actually gone for a week without having a really good time of prayer or I've gone for a few days without reading enough of my Bible or I I tried reading my Bible and I didn't get much out of it a few days ago or, or, or this morning it's like that. I'm still really not good enough. I'm still not really righteous because what I really believe is that Jesus is my righteousness plus a good quiet time in the morning. Jesus is my righteousness plus me reading a certain number of chapters in the Bible. Jesus is my righteousness plus whatever it is that I'm grading myself by that week. And I'm constantly trying to achieve this sort of bar that I can't quite get over and so my constant... Instinctive, ongoing gut feeling as a Christian can be this pervading sense of failure and disappointment. Disappointment to God, disappointment to myself, maybe disappointment to my Christian friends. And the only way I'm going to deal with that sense of disappointment is by really outperforming myself. I'm doing better this week than I did last week. That's how I will overcome. I will be impressive. It's called the yeast of the Pharisees. And it's just as dangerous and it's just as warned against by Jesus. What Jesus wants us to have instead is the certainty of approval that only he, only he is able to give to us. Jesus is the only person that can provide for your soul the approval you were made to know. The, 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 the approval of God the Father is given to those who are in Christ. If you, if you walk through your life trying as, as a Christian to score Christian points, You're scheduled for a mixture of pride and discouragement, pride and discouragement, pride and discouragement, both of which are bad places to stay. Jesus warns against it. And the reason we do that is because we can't imagine that there's a better bread for us. We can't imagine that the bread that Jesus gives is enough. That the bread of of his provision, his love, his kindness... Is going to be enough for us. And so we try and supplement it with our own bread, with our own yeast, with our own improvements on his bread. And and we need to step right back from that attitude. Learn to lean on his righteousness. And what this does for us is it not only sets us free from this Pharisee yeast, but it also sets us free from the Sadducee yeast. Because you see, really, it's built on the same need. The Sadducee needs to be accepted by people. The Pharisee needs to be accepted by God. Jesus shows us a way to know that we are accepted by God. And because we can know that we're accepted by God, we don't actually need to be accepted by people. Not in the same way. We don't need the approval of people. We don't. We actually don't. I remember the time when I was about 16 where it kind of dawned on me, I did not need to have people in my school and college think well of me. And I could go to them and say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. And no, they might reject me. They might not even break friendship with me. And in the end, I could say, sad as that is, I don't need that because I have Christ. I have Christ, which is all I need. And this is what the believer is called to do. Is called to step into a life of trusting, believing that he is all we need. That his bread is enough for us. And as if, as if to say to his disciples, the bread is always enough, Jesus had done miracles. 4,000 people, 5,000 people fed miraculously by Jesus. I'd like to, the musicians to come and join us as we close this, this session. But I want us to, in a moment, when I ask you to stand, to, to stand confident, prayerful, ready to receive from God. When Jesus gave out bread and fish on a kind of industrial scale to crowds of people, miraculous bread and fish that was just made from nothing, he was saying to us, I have abundant, over-the-top, massive, mahusive, big, good love for you. I'm able to provide for you on such a scale that there's always left over. There's always more than you think. My acceptance of you, approval of you, love for you because of what has happened for us through Jesus on the cross is so great that we can walk free of this need. We can live in the good of it. So I'd like the guys to lead us in a song of response. And, uh, and we'll just, we'll seek God together as we close the service. And I want to ask you, each one of you, to consider in your heart, what bread are you eating? What are you feeding on? The bread of your righteousness? The bread of the approval of people around you? Even people in your youth group? Or the bread of God the Father approving of his son and you because you're in his son Jesus? Let's, let's stand together and you guys can lead us in worship.